Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So let's just recap Joseph's life because this is our final night together. He was a 17-year-old boy. He was an upstart with the coat of many colors. His brothers were jealous of him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. They lied about it. He gets sold into slavery, goes to Potiphar's house, gets accused of rape, gets in prison for two years, gets forgotten about by the cupbearer, has to wait another you know, couple of years, and then he is released, and then he becomes prime minister of Egypt, the second most powerful man in the land, and then his brothers have to come back to Egypt to get grain because there's a famine in the land, and he tests them by putting treasure in their knapsacks to make it look like they were stealing and then they demand for Benjamin to come back and they go back to Jacob and Jacob's like I don't want to send Benjamin back because I know what happened when I sent Joseph my you know my, my prized son he got killed and so the question we asked was are these brothers going to repent are they going to change and we started to see that last time Joseph is kind of hiding his identity, but where we ended up last time was all the brothers are eating a meal together, and the big question is, is Joseph going to be able to forgive? And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 44, 45, 46, and 50 tonight. I don't think I've ever done that many chapters in one night, but we're going to, I'm going to kind of have to readers digest some of this to kind of get through it. So I promise you we'll go the full time tonight. But since we only had three minutes last week because of a tornado, you're going to get the full, the full time. So let's look at chapter 44. And there's two things I want you to see happen in this passage of Scripture. Um, one is the dramatic change in Judah. Remember, Judah's the fourthborn. Judah is beginning to emerge as the leader of the family. Not Reuben, not Simeon, not Levi, but Judah, the fourthborn. And then this is the one theme we're going to see all through this, and we're going to culminate on this in chapter 50, is the absolute sovereignty of God who works out all things for good. Now, you know what Romans 8, 28 says, For those who love God, who have been called according to His purpose, God works out all things for good. So this is Joseph's final test of his brothers. The final test to see if they've repented, to see if they're truly um, come to a place where they're not going to be dishonest, they're not going to be jealous. How are they going to treat Benjamin, the youngest brother that's the favorite of their dad, Jacob? So let's read verses 1 through 13. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. With his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. 
When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does the Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your service to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever your servant is found with, it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Okay, now you may think, well, why is Joseph doing this? This is the final test. Um, They're enjoying this wonderful meal together, and then all of a sudden it goes back to the youngest son. So what does Joseph do? Joseph sets it up to where Benjamin looks like he stole the cup. And so what did they do many, many years before to Joseph? They were jealous of him. They threw him in a pit. They left him for dead. So what's Joseph waiting to see? How are you brothers going to treat Benjamin? Are you going to throw him under the bus? Are you going to mistreat him? Okay. Um, So they're innocent or they claim their innocence in verse 9. And basically, they're so confident they're innocent. Did you notice what verse 9 said? What do they say? Whichever of your servant is found with it shall die, and we also will be the Lord's servant. So what are they, what are they saying? Whoever has stolen this, we're so innocent we haven't stolen anything, but if there's one of us that has stolen it, that one's going to die. And so here comes the moment of truth. An Academy Award cinematography, slow motion with the music, one knapsack. They start with the oldest, and they get down to the final knapsack, the final sack, the youngest brother, and what happens? There's tension in the air. They open up Benjamin's knapsack, and what do they find? They find the cup there. And what did they say? They said, whoever has stolen it, that one will die. So what do they all, what do the brothers all realize in that moment? Oh, no, not again. Jacob is going to be upset beyond belief because he did not want to send his youngest son back, Benjamin. And here it is. We've made the promise that whoever has stolen it will die. Benjamin's going to have to die. We're going to have to go back to dad and tell him that not only was Joseph killed and we lied to him, but now we have to go back and say that Benjamin, your other favorite son, is going to die. So here's the question. Are they going to cover it up? Are they going to go back to dad and say, well, you know, here's what happened. What are they going to do? Well, here's what we see in scene two. Judah's self-sacrificing love. What does Judah do? And it's important that it's Judah that does it. Okay, now interestingly, this is the longest speech, the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. I don't know if you knew that. Longer than Abraham, longer than Isaac, longer than Jacob. This is the longest speech of anybody saying something in Genesis, and it's out of the mouth of Judah, who takes center stage and becomes a leader. So let's see what Judah has to say. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers 
came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you've done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hands the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother's dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When he went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see this man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servants, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Okay, so what is Judah doing? Judah tells Joseph the whole story. I have a dad. He's an old man. And the first time that we had a brother, that brother died. He doesn't tell Joseph the reason behind it, but he just said, we had to go back to our dad and tell him that Joseph died. And my dad was distraught. And now we have Benjamin, his younger brother, from the same mother. This is my dad's pride and joy. My dad loves this boy. My dad did not want Benjamin to go down to Egypt, but he went reluctantly. And if we don't come back with Benjamin, my dad's going to die of, my dad's going to die in old age. He's going to die a distraught man. He's going to just die just brokenhearted because he's lost another one of his favorite sons. So what is Judah doing now? Does this sound like the same Judah that wanted to sell his brother into slavery back earlier? No. Judah does two interesting things. Number one, Judah has an undying love for his father. The word father is repeated 14 times in the speech. You see Judah saying, I don't, I don't want to disappoint Jacob. I love my dad. I'm doing this for my dad. My dad's the patriarch. My dad's the grandson of Abraham. If Benjamin is to die, this would crush my dad, and I can't let that happen. 
I love my dad too much to let this happen. Okay, that's the first thing you see. But the most important thing you'd see is number two. He's willing to become a substitutionary sacrifice for Benjamin. Now, what do you see in verse 28? Verse 28, Surely, or one left me, and I said, Surely he's been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. He's basically, basically saying that this is going to kill, this is going to kill my father. I've never seen this son. If you take this one also from me and it happens to him, it'll bring down my gray hairs into Sheol. I can't let this happen to my dad. So you see the culmination there in verse 33. There's a very key word that shows up in the Hebrew text that's very, very important. Verse 33. Now therefore, please let your servant, Judah's talking about himself, please let me, your servant, remain instead of the boy. Instead of the boy. This is none other than substitutionary language. What Judah is saying is, I know we said whoever's found with the cup is deserving to die, and Judah, I mean, Benjamin is found with the cup, and he deserves to die, but I'm not going to let Benjamin die. Let me be in the place of him. If that means I have to die or I have to go to prison, please let the punishment come upon me. Don't let it come upon Benjamin because it's going to kill my father. Let me be the substitute. Let me be the one that stands in the place of Benjamin. Let me take the punishment. And it's very interesting because that word instead is the same Hebrew word used back in Genesis 22 when Abraham took Isaac up Mount Moriah to sacrifice him on the, on the altar, and he saw the ram in the thicket instead of killing his son on the altar. So that little word instead is substitutionary atonement language. And basically it's code word for Judah saying, I will be the substitutionary atonement for my brother because I love my father Jacob so much. Now, does this sound familiar? Who is the lion from the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Jesus was willing to lay down his life as a substitute for those whom he loved. He willingly laid it down. Jesus died in the place of sinners. Instead of us dying on the cross, Jesus died in our place as a substitute. Instead language. We see this in John 17, I mean John 10, 17 through 18. This is Jesus speaking. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay, down, I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So this is the high point of Judah. Judah is basically stepping up to the plate and saying, I will be a substitutionary atonement for my brother Benjamin because I love my father so much. And it's a picture of Jesus being willing to be our substitute to die in our place. Even though he's innocent, he died for the guilty so that we could be reconciled to our heavenly father. So this is Judah's high point here. Judah, the, and Jesus is from the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah. Judah emerges as a substitute for his beloved younger brother. Now that's a dramatic change because how did they treat Joseph when he was a 17-year-old boy? They hated him with a seething hatred 
and they threw him in a pit, and they sold him into slavery, and they lied about it to their dad. Total transformation. Judah loves his dad. Judah loves Benjamin. I'm willing to lay down my life for my brother. Okay, now we move into chapter 45. And this is scene three. This is all kind of, like, these all kind of flow together. The mask finally comes off. Okay, at this point, do the brothers even know who Joseph is? They just know him as the prime minister of Egypt. He speaks Egyptian. He looks Egyptian. His head shaved. He's this man in charge. He's put him through all these tests. He, he, he's asking about the dad. He's asking about the brothers. He's, he, he's basically the man in charge. But here the mask comes off. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Will Joseph be reconciled to his brothers who betrayed him so many years ago? So let's go into chapter 45. Like I said, we're moving fast tonight. So um, hold on to your, to your seats. Chapter 45. Let's keep moving. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence, obviously. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father all my honor in Egypt and all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, all his brothers talked with him. Hey, Joseph can't control himself any longer. I've got I to gotta reveal myself. So he sends everybody out of the room. Now, why does he send everybody out of the room? This is an intimate, private moment where he wants to just share this with his brothers. And basically, what does he say in verse 3? Pretty straightforward. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Joseph drops the bomb. I'm Joseph. Now, it says, how, how did they respond at that point? <laughs> Look at what it says there. Verse Three, but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. That word literally means they were shocked into panic like an army was coming to attack them. They were shaken in their boots. So this is the moment of truth. Now when Joseph says come closer, he could have done one of two things. What could he have rightfully done? 
Come closer so I can chop off your heads, you evil brothers. I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to punish you. You did me wrong, and you're going to pay for it. Come close so I can tell you your death sentence. But that's not what he does. He says, come close, and I'm going to tell you what happened. What Joseph does here is amazing considering everything he's been through. What would you have done? I want to get even. I want to teach my brothers a lesson. No, what does he do? He lavishes abundant forgiveness on these guilty brothers. What does he say? Go get your dad. I mean, go get dad. Go get Jacob quickly. Bring him down to Egypt. Don't hesitate. Don't tarry. Go get dad. Tell him I'm alive. I want to be reunited with Jacob. Go quickly and bring dad back. And by the way, I'm going to put you in the land of Goshen. I'm going to put you in the land of Goshen. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Now, how did the brothers treat Joseph as a 17-year-old boy who walked around in that coat of many colors, okay? You could go back. We don't have time to read it, but I've got it there in your notes. Genesis 37 basically says that they hated him. They hated him. But what do we see happening here? There's weeping. There's crying. There's hugging. There's reconciliation. It has come full circle. They're embracing. There's complete forgiveness and reconciliation. Joseph forgives his brothers now you have to ask the question why does he do it we're going to get to this in chapter 50 but i'm going to tip my hand here and show you because we're going to come back to it because you see it in chapter 45 and you see it in chapter 50 but notice the theology of joseph what does joseph say he's very clear in what he says verse 7 god sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth Actually, go back up to verse 5. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to ask the question now, but we'll come back into it. Well, who's responsible for Joseph being sold into slavery? Is it the brothers or is it God? And the answer is yes. It's both. But what does Joseph say? You did it. You sent me into slavery. But it was God's plan. God was the one that did it. You were fulfilling God's plan. As evil as it was, and you're responsible for that evil, you were only doing what God ordained to happen. Now we'll get back to that in chapter 50, and I'm going to unpack that. But I just want to introduce that to you right now, because Joseph basically has a theology that says, the sovereignty of God's at work here because you may think that you're the ones that did this, but ultimately this was God's plan because God works all things out for good and God worked this out. He, he, he did all this so that I would be raised to the prime minister so that I could have this plan to save your lives. I'm the source of salvation for our family because now you're coming and getting grain for me and now you're going to be living in the land of Goshen. Okay? So let's keep seeing what happens here as Joseph promises to provide for his family and what is goshen we'll talk about goshen okay so let's keep reading verses 16 through 28 
When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Now, just stop right there. Pharaoh's happy about this. I mean, Pharaoh could have been bitter. Pharaoh could have taken up Joseph's case and said, you know, you were, you were being pretty easy on your brothers. I'm, I'll punish them for the way they treated you. But God worked in the pagan Pharaoh's heart to even be happy with this. And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beast and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And here's the key part. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Okay, now... What does Joseph do based upon what Pharaoh says? I'm going to give your family the best of the land. Go get your dad and go load up all all his stuff and bring the entire family back and all your cattle and all your possessions. And instead of living in the land of Canaan, you're going to live in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, the best of the land, which probably had bountiful resources, probably had a lot of flowing water. It was the best of the land. And notice what Joseph does. He gives them new clothes. Remember I said the entire Joseph story is about clothing? How did it start? They ripped off his coat of many colors and threw him in the pit. And then they took the clothes and put the blood of an animal on it to deceive their father. Remember Potiphar? She grabbed, Potiphar's wife grabbed his cloak When he got out of prison, he changed his clothes. Now, you may say, what's the symbolism here of giving them new clothes? Well, basically what this is, is this is a symbolic way of saying all is forgiven. I'm giving you a new start. I'm giving you new clothes. But notice what he does to Benjamin. It's almost like Joseph's doing one last test to make sure it sticks. What does he do to Benjamin? I'm going to give you $300 more than everybody else. And I'm going to give you five changes of clothes. So there's preferential treatment to Benjamin. Now, what could the boys have done? Notice what Joseph says to them. (laughs) Notice what he says to them in verse 24. Do not quarrel on the way. Oh, no, here we go again. Now Joseph's playing favorites with the youngest. We thought Jacob was playing favorites. Now Joseph's playing favorites. He gave Benjamin more. We're going to be upset now. Do they have any reason to be upset at this point? What could Joseph have done to them? Could have killed all of them except for Benjamin. But he doesn't. He gives them new clothes. He says, go get dad. Come back. You're going to get the best of the land. Okay. 
So what are we waiting for now? What's the last thing that has to happen? How does it fully have to come to full circle? The last time Joseph saw his dad, Jacob, was when he was a 17-year-old boy, and Jacob said, go find your brothers. And he trots off in that coat of many colors. He hasn't seen his dad since he was a 17-year-old boy. So Joseph and his dad, Jacob, need to be reunited. Okay, so the boys, the brothers, are going to go back to the land of Canaan. They're going to tell Jacob, Joseph's alive, and then they're going to get him and bring everything back so that they can settle in the land of Goshen, the best of the land. So let's move into chapter 46. I told you we're covering a lot of ground tonight. So, Am I going too fast? You guys okay? I'm trying to make it as, as Reader's Digest as I can without giving all the details. Okay, so the faithfulness of Jacob's covenant God. Now, it's important to see what happens here at the beginning of chapter 46. So let's read verses 1 through 7, and I'm going to explain to you the importance of this. So Israel, now remember, Israel is a pseudonym, the same name as Jacob. So Jacob is also called Israel. It's not the nation yet, it's the man. So at this point, when you see the word Israel, it's talking about the man Jacob. Because remember, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel when he fought the angel. So, or he wrestled with the angel. So Israel took his journey with all he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in the vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, first of all, where is Beersheba? Just geographically. Beersheba is the southernmost city or town in the land of Canaan before you, you leave the promised land. Now, it's not the promised land yet, per se, but if you look at a map, it's the, it's, it's, as you're leaving the promised land and going down to Egypt, you go through Beersheba. It's basically the border of where the, the land of Canaan ends and you start going into, heading to Egypt. But there's something more important about that. What's so vital about Beersheba, not just the geography, in Genesis 21, 32-33, it's the sacred place where Abraham worshipped the Lord and called Him the everlasting God. So grandpa, it was a special sacred place where Jacob's grandpa, Abraham, met with the living God. In Genesis chapter 26, verses 23-25, this is where the Lord appeared to Isaac and gave him the promise of many offspring. And Isaac built an altar there as well and worshiped the Lord. So what is Jacob doing? Yes, technically he has to leave and go south to get to Egypt, but he stops at the place where his grandfather Abraham and his dad Isaac had a special moment with the Lord and built an altar. And this is his moment to spend before the living God, before he takes his entire family out of the land of Canaan and goes to Egypt. 
And God speaks to him there. And here's another little bit of trivia. This is the last time God himself will speak to the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. The next time God will speak to an individual will be Moses at the burning bush some 430 years later. So God speaks to Jacob and notice what he says to him. He says there in verse 2, Jacob, Jacob, he said, here am I. And then he said to him, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation. That was the same promise that was given to Abraham. I'll make you into a great nation. That's the same promise that was given to Isaac. I'll make you into a great nation. Now it's repeated a third time. I will make you a great nation. But where is that great nation going to be made? It's not in the land of Canaan. I will make you into a great nation in Egypt. So this is the last time the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that family is in the promised land, the land of Canaan. They're leaving, and they're going to settle in Egypt, and it's not going to be until about four or five hundred years later to when Joshua is going to lead them back into the promised land. But they're going to become a great nation in Egypt. And God's going to be with their family. So they pack up and leave. Jacob has this intimate moment with the Lord in the same place that his grandpa Abraham and his dad Isaac did. And the entire family, everybody, packs up and they're heading down to Egypt. And then next we're going to see the, reun- the reunion. The, 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 Jacob and Joseph are reunited. So let's just keep reading. I've skipped a little bit just to kind of save time. So let's go to to chapter 46. Let's pick up in verse 28. And just notice how fitting it is who he sends ahead. Who's the firstborn, by the way? Reuben. Who's the secondborn? Simeon. Who's the thirdborn? Levi. Those three guys turned out to be evil jerks, okay? Judah, the fourthborn, remember what Judah did? He was willing to sacrifice himself. So Judah has emerged as a leader. Who is Jacob going to send ahead to be the family representative? Well, let's see. Judah. So verse 28. He sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Remember, Goshen is the best of the land. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I've seen your face and know that you're still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Okay. Joseph comes out in his chariot. I think he wanted to show his dad that it's legitimate. I'm the... I'm the prime minister it's not a wasn't a story the brothers made up 
And what does he do when he sees his dad? I mean, look how graphic it is. It says there in verse 29, he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. How long is a good while? I don't know, but a lot of crying. It's the first time he's seen his dad. the first time his dad's seen him. And what, is, what does Jacob say? Okay, I can die now. <laughs> I can die now because you're alive. I've seen you. We've been reunited. That's all I wanted. But Goshen is the place prepared for them. And so to the Egyptians, shepherds were kind of low-life scum. And so the reason that Joseph tells Jacob to say we're shepherds is because they wouldn't be a threat to the Egyptians. He didn't come down and say, hey, we're an army, we're going to invade. It's like, tell them you're shepherds, which is true. We're not going to bother anybody. We're just going to herd our cattle and we're going to herd our sheep. We're not a threat. We're not a military threat. We're shepherds. Egyptians thought, okay, shepherds are kind of scum anyway. They're not a threat. So that's why he told them, say we're shepherds. Um, they weren't trying to come in with political power. They weren't coming in as spies. They were coming in who they were. They'd always been shepherds. Okay, now, what has been the promise all along? The promise all along, remember all the way back, all the way back when Joseph had those dreams as a 17-year-old boy. What were the dreams? Mom and dad and brothers are going to come bow down before me. And I'm going to be the provider of their grain and their, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to be their provider and they're going to, I'm going to be their savior and I'm going to be their provider. I'm going to provide for their needs and I'm going to be the one they come and bow down to. But then what's the immediate promise right here? You will have the best of the land. You will settle in Goshen, the best of the land, a land of quote unquote milk and honey in Egypt. So let's see the promise of provision fulfilled. So let's just go down to chapter 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What's your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of my years of sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. It's interesting, Pharaoh says, how old are you? You look kind of old. <laughs> what did Jacob say? I'm 130 years old. I've had a long, eventful life. Some of it evil, some of it good. 
Not as long as my grandpa, Abraham, or my dad, Isaac, but it's been an eventful life. And, and so what ends up happening here? It's kind of like all's well that ends well, right? They're in the land of Goshen. They've got the blessing of Pharaoh. The family's been reunited. They're getting provided for. Their needs are being met. They're not a threat to the government. They're simple shepherds living All's well that ends well, right? Okay. Now, let's skip because the rest of chapter 47, the, the famine continues and Joseph continues to provide for his family. Chapter 48, Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are the kids of Joseph. That whole left hand, right hand, opposite blessing type thing, if you remember that thing. And then in chapter 49... Jacob blesses every one of the 12 sons. And then in chapter 49, you've got basically the 12 tribes of Israel and basically the blessing upon all of them. But at the end of chapter 48, let's just pick up in verse 28. Chapter 48, verse 20. I know this is not on your sheet, but this is, this is the end of Jacob's life. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field of Machlephah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan with Abraham, bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that as, it was, that as it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So after Jacob blesses his sons, he says, Listen, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. Take my bones in the coffin and take it back to the cave where my grandpa, Abraham, and my grandma, Sarah, and my dad and mom, Isaac and Rebecca, are buried. I want to be buried with my ancestors. And so he dies at a ripe old age. Now, here's the tension that happens in chapter 50. What fear would you have if you're a brother of Jacob? I mean, of Joseph. Here's the fear. Dad's dead. Maybe all this time, Joseph was being nice to us out of honor for Jacob. Now that Jacob's dead, Joseph could come back and make life hard on us. Maybe it was all a ruse. Maybe he was just doing it because he was, while dad was still alive, there's peace in the family. Now that dad's dead, maybe Joseph's going to come back and arrest us, or maybe he's going to put us in prison, or maybe he's, now he's going to exact revenge. Now that dad's dead, who knows what Joseph's going to do now. So that's what we see in chapter 50. So let's move into chapter 50. By the way, this is the last chapter of Genesis, so we have nowhere else to go in the life of Joseph, so we're, we're almost there. So chapter 50, let's just read verses 1 through 14. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. 
Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Now this is interesting. The only two people that were embalmed in the Old Testament that were quote-unquote Israelites were Jacob and Joseph. And it's important that he's embalmed. Why? Because they need to carry his body back to the land of Canaan to be able to be buried. Okay? So, 70 days of mourning. And when the days of weeping for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now this is a powerful entourage. Who all is going up? you got the entire family, Plus, you got all the elders of Egypt. Like, this is like a huge entourage honoring Jacob, which is very unusual because Jacob's not an Egyptian. But because Joseph is such an honored man in Egypt, the Egyptians are honoring Joseph by having this huge entourage taking the body, the embalmed body, in the coffin of Jacob back up to the land of Canaan. And where is Jacob buried? He's buried in the cave where Abraham and Isaac are buried. So they, they made good on that promise. Jacob said, listen, I want to be buried with my ancestors, so please let me be buried there. And so they did that. They all went up, they lamented, they buried him, and they all came back. Okay. Now, here's where the brothers get a little nervous. So let's keep reading here. And then we're going to deal with some theology. 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The brothers are like, listen, 
he, Joseph may take out his anger on us finally. And so they basically come to Joseph and say, hey, Dad, before he died, says, you know, you've got to forgive your brothers. And Joseph's like, I'm weeping because I have forgiven you. Don't you guys realize there's, there's nothing to worry about? There's no fear. There's nothing to worry about. It's going to be okay. I'm going to provide for you. But verse 20, maybe the most theologically complex statement in the entire Joseph story. And I want you to pay close attention to what it says. Because some people will make it say what it doesn't say. Does it say, God responded to your evil and worked it out after the fact? No. What does he say? Look at verse 20. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it. What's the it? God meant that same evil for good. Okay, so what does the word meant mean? <laughs> what does the word meant mean? In Hebrew, it means to weave or to determine or to strategize or to devise. It was often used when an army was going to war and how they would devise a battle plan. So here's the theology of this passage of Scripture. The brothers determined and planned evil against Joseph by selling him into slavery. Okay. And they were acting freely in doing this evil. Did any outside force cause them to act this way? No. They acted out of jealousy. They acted out of hatred. They purposely meant evil for Joseph. They're guilty, guilty, guilty. They devised it. They meant it. They strategized it. They perpetrated it. Yet, at the very same time, God didn't just use their evil or respond to their evil. God had a divine purpose and intention in their evil as well to make it turn out the way God wanted it to turn out. So here's the question. Is God absolutely sovereign and at the same time are humans responsible for their actions? And the answer is yes. Let's ask the first question. Is God sovereign? Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. If God has a plan, is He going to accomplish His plan? Yes. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So here's what this passage of Scripture is saying. The brothers acted freely to do what they wanted to do. God acted freely to do what God wanted to do. The brothers ended up doing exactly what God wanted them to do. So that what happened was what God wanted to have happen. But while the brothers were doing it, they didn't know what God's plan was. They were doing what they wanted to do, but they were accomplishing what God wanted to do. Okay, no, that's a, that's a mouthful. So let me teach you a new term. It's called, in theological terms, compatibilism. It comes from the word compatible. Okay, so here's, here's the question. Is God's absolute sovereignty over all things compatible with human responsibility? 
Because let's just ask the question. In verse 20, do you see two plans or do you see one plan? You see two actors, right? The brothers meant something. The brothers meant evil. But God meant that same evil for good. Now, let's ask the question that we talked about earlier. I brought it up earlier. Let's go back and read chapter 45, verses 5 through 8. Because I told you that Joseph already brought this up. So let let me ask it this way. Who's responsible for selling Joseph into slavery? Is it the brothers or God? Both. Okay, and how do we reconcile that? How does it how does that compatible? So let's go back to chapter 45, and we read this earlier, but let's just read it again. This is the first time that Joseph Joseph reveals himself. We saw this just a few moments ago, but notice what he says there in verse 5 of chapter 45. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh, and the lord of all of his house, and rulers over the land of Egypt. Now how can Joseph say that? How can Joseph say, brothers, you didn't send me here? Is that a true statement? Well, yeah, they did. They sold him into slavery. It was the brothers' fault. If they had not sold him into slavery, he would not have ended up in Egypt. So the brothers did it. They did evil. They sold him into slavery. But Joseph says, it really wasn't you who did it. It was God that did it. So here's the question. Who's responsible for doing what? Did the brothers do evil? Yes. Was it God's plan? Yes. Who sent Joseph into Egypt? Was it the brothers or was it God? Yes. Both. This is called compatibilism. God has a plan. People have a plan. And people do freely what they want to do and end up doing what God wants them to do without God forcing them to do it. Okay. Now, let's talk about compatibilism. That's a hard word to say. I want to give you six aspects of this paradox of compatibilism. So now we're done with the narrative. Okay, we're done with the life of Joseph. Now what we're going to do is we're going to go into a little bit of theology and try to reconcile this theology that Joseph has. Joseph is saying, listen, you didn't really do this even though you did. God did it. So so who's responsible? Is God responsible? Are the people responsible? The answer is both. So let's, let's talk about six aspects of this. So here's number one. God is absolutely sovereign and ordains his plan to be fulfilled without fail. Okay. That, that is something that, that we believe here. God will accomplish his sovereign plan without fail. Well, let's look at some scriptures that teach that. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. If God wants to do something, he's going to do it. Where is he going to do it? In heaven, earth, wherever, in the deeps. Okay? Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Then from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God doesn't say, I may accomplish it, I might accomplish it. 
I'm going to try really hard to accomplish it. I'm going I'm to respond to your actions and see if I can figure it out and accomplish it. What does God say? I will accomplish all my purpose. And then Job 42.2, you guys have probably heard this over and over and over again. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So let's just ask the question, if God has a purpose, can it be thwarted? Can it be stopped? Is God going to accomplish it? Is God absolutely sovereign? If God has a plan, is he going to carry it out? Yes. Now, here's question number two. This is the one that we don't like. There's not a real good answer to this, and this is kind of the tension. Here's number two. We are not often told how God does this. It is his secret will of providence. Here's what the Bible does. The Bible just assumes that God is absolutely sovereign and people are responsible and it just reports what happens. Often the Bible doesn't tell us how it happens. And God's not under any obligation to tell us how he does that. Why? Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has a secret, sovereign will that He's working out behind the scenes that He's not obligated to share with us. So God is sovereign, and God is working out His plan, but He doesn't have to tell us how He's doing it. He doesn't have to you know, roll back the cosmic curtain and give us all the details. God can just do what God wants to do without revealing it to us. Now, what are we responsible for? Are we responsible for the secret things? What does that text say? The secret things belong to who? God. Do they belong to us? No, we're not accountable for knowing the secret things of God. What are we accountable for knowing? The things that are revealed. What are the things that are revealed? The scriptures. The things we're responsible for, God has given us to be responsible for. His written word. If His written word tells us, we're responsible to obey it. But the secret things, we're not going to be held accountable on the day of judgment for not knowing the secret things of God, because he's not chosen to reveal those to us. So God is absolutely sovereign. God will accomplish his sovereign purpose. The Bible just assumes this to be true and does not often tell us how God does that. Okay, now here's number three. Humans are simultaneously free and morally responsible for their actions. You might say, how can you, how can you say that? If God's absolutely sovereign, how can people be morally responsible? Okay, let me ask you a question. Does God make people sin? Why do you sin? Because it's your nature to do so. Let me, let me put it this way. Did God put a gun to the head of the brothers of Joseph and say, you will betray him and sell him into slavery? Did God have to do that? No. Did they act freely out of their own nature? What was their nature? Their nature was to be jealous. Their nature was to be angry. Their, their nature was to be seethingly mad at their brother. And they acted according to the freedom of their nature. Nobody, nobody made them do that. Okay. On the day of judgment, you will be judged, or non-believers will be judged for what they did. 
Romans 2, 5-6, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, He will render each one according to their works. Humans act out of their nature. Okay, so let's say this. Non-Christians who have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and given new life act freely out of their nature. And what's that nature always going to do until it's changed by God? It's always going to be sinful. So I can stand before you and say they are using their free will to do what they want to do. It's just that their will is always going to do evil because it hasn't been changed. As Christians, what happens to our wills when God saves us? He renews our wills. He changes our wills. He gives us the desire to obey because he puts the Holy Spirit in us. So we are free to act according to our nature. Non-Christians act according to their nature, which is sinful. Christians act according to their nature, which is we're saved and have the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we sin. Sometimes we follow the Spirit. But we can't ever go back to saying that we're under the power of sin because that's not true of us now that we've been saved. Okay, I know we've, we've, done, we've gotten a lot of information tonight. So here's number four. So number one, God's absolutely sovereign. Number two, we don't often know how God works this out. Number three, humans are absolutely responsible and free to act according to their nature. But here's number four. Sometimes, in His common grace, God intervenes to restrain sin and evil being worse than they could be. Now let me ask you a question. Could the brothers have done more to Joseph than what they did? Yes. What could they have done? They could have acted all the way and killed him. If they really wanted to act out of the nature of the hatred of their heart, they could have gone all the way and killed him. Now, the text doesn't tell us that God stopped them from doing that, but there are times, and we again don't know how all this works out, God in His common grace can restrain evil in our world. So let me ask it a different way. Can our world be more wicked than it is? Yes. You have to ask the question, why is it not? Because sometimes in God's secret sovereignty, He restrains evil when it could be a whole lot worse. Now, I don't know how God does it. I don't know why God does it. I don't know in some cases God does, some cases God doesn't. Again, that's up to God to do how he does it. I just know this. Our world could be a whole lot more wicked than it is. And so God is restraining evil even in his sovereignty. Even in your own life. Think about your own heart. Could you act worse than you have acted? And maybe God is restraining you at times through the power of the Holy Spirit. So sometimes God in his common grace restrains evil from happening. Okay, number five. In all of this, God is never the author of sin, nor is he responsible for the evil actions of humans. Humans are responsible for sin, not God. Now, here's the hard thing, and you may disagree with me on this. God can ordain that sin happen without being the one who directly does it. James 1, 13-15. Let no one say, 
when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives forth, or brings forth death. Okay. I don't have time to go into this, but I'll, I'll say the statement and you may struggle with it. God is never the direct cause of evil. But he can ordain evil to happen through secondary causes. So let me ask you a question. Think about the life of Job. Who was the source of Job's problems? Okay. You say Satan. Okay, but literally, who was the source of Job's problems? The Sabaeans came and raided his family. There was like, these raiders came and they killed his family. So they were responsible. And then a wind came and knocked down the house. Well, who was behind that? Satan. Okay, who was behind that? Did Satan do it on his own? Or did God point out Job and say, Have you considered my servant Job? God ordained Job to go through what he went through. Did God directly do it to Job? No. He allowed Satan to do it, and even Satan was directly doing it. It was through, like, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans that came and raided, and, and the wind. Now, during this whole time, did Job have any idea what was going on between God and Satan? At the end of the book of Job, Job attributes everything that happened to him to God. He doesn't say, this, Satan brought this upon me. He says, look what God has done. God has brought this evil upon me. Even though God didn't directly do it. So God's not the direct cause of evil. So again, I'll let that hang out there. God can ordain evil to happen without directly causing it. And at the same time, humans being responsible for the evil that they do. Again, it's a paradox. We may not fully understand how it all works. But there's one thing we do know. And this is number six. And this is related to the omniscience and foreknowledge of God. God is not feverishly working after the fact to somehow use or transform the already committed evil and make it work out for good. Some people would say, well, God didn't really know what was going to happen with these brothers. They went off script. They, they went and they sold Joseph into slavery, and so God has to feverishly pick up the pieces and make it work afterwards. Is that what it says there? No, God, you meant... This for evil. God, same word, meant it for good. God didn't use it. God didn't somehow clean up the act. There was a purpose in it. Okay, now, let me give you some applications. Like, let's make this a little bit more where the rubber meets the road in your life. Especially if you've suffered like Joseph has or you've been betrayed like Joseph has, or you have a hard time forgiving somebody the way Joseph could have done, even though he chose to forgive his brothers. So, number one, some application. God did not turn a blind eye to suffering in the world, but came in the flesh and was born in Bethlehem to experience the fallenness of human evil. Do you know what sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions? Some of the Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, they really have no answer for suffering. 
Sometimes they'll say it's an illusion. You don't, you're not really suffering. Or you must have done something bad in your former life and you came back reincarnated you know, this time around. You better get it right. Or there's just bad karma happening to you. you really, you're suffering because you did something wrong. You're suffering because that's the way the universe is treating you. There's really no good answer to suffering in the other world religions. What did God do? God said, listen, I'm going to send my son to leave the glories of heaven. He's going to leave the glories of heaven. He's going to come live as a human being. He's going to experience all the suffering that you experience. He's going to experience hunger. He's going to experience betrayal. He's actually going to be nailed to a cross and experience the worst of suffering. So God can relate to our suffering because he sent Jesus right into the midst of the suffering. It's not an illusion. It's not karma. It's God said Jesus is going to sympathize with your suffering by becoming a human and being obedient to the death on the cross. So if there's any Anybody that can relate to our suffering, Jesus can, because he suffered the same way we did, and far worse, as a human, fully God and fully man. So God didn't just turn a blind eye and say, well, it's, it's an illusion, deal with it. No, God sent Jesus into the world to pay for sin. Number two, in the cross of Christ, wicked men intended the greatest evil while at the same time God intended the greatest good. I want to show you two passages of Scripture. So let me ask it before we look at these Scriptures, who's responsible for the death of Christ? Was it the Roman soldiers? Was it Pilate? Was it the Jewish leaders? Was it Herod? Was it God? Okay, you got human actors carrying out their evil, doing God's predestined plan. And you're like, well, how do you get that, Pastor Sean? Let me give you two passages in Acts. Acts chapter 2, 22 through 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see the two things there? You physically killed Jesus. You physically nailed him to the cross. But it was God's predetermined, definite plan. It was God's plan, but you carried it out, out of the evilness of your own heart. Acts 4, 27-28, evilness. I don't even know if that's a word, evil, the evil of your own heart. Acts 4, 27-28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And he lists the human actors here. Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, that would be the Roman soldiers, and the peoples of Israel, that was the Jewish leaders, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Humanly speaking, it was Pontius Pilate, it was the Roman soldiers, it was the Jewish leaders. It was Herod. Those are the human actors responsible. But behind it all, they were doing what God had predestined to take place. Humans acted sinfully out of their nature to crucify Jesus. God did not make them crucify Jesus. They did it out of anger and, 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 and hatred of their own heart. But at the same time, they were doing exactly what God predetermined to happen, that the cross would happen by the hands of sinful men. So even in the cross, you see both of these things at play. The sovereign, predestined plan of God taking place and human responsibility of people doing what they wanted to do. 
The people that killed Jesus did what they wanted to do, but they were doing exactly what God wanted to do, the the predestined plan of God for Jesus to die on the cross. Now, here's number three. Let's make it real personal. You and I are the cause of much evil in the world, and God has every right to punish you, but instead shows you merciful patience. I'm often asked, why doesn't God just get rid of all the evil in the world? You know what my answer is? He'd have to kill every single one of us. Who's the source of evil? People. Have you ever thought that God is being compassionate by allowing you to live? Because you could cause a lot of evil. So the cause of a lot of evil in the world is people doing evil, and God allows people to live so that they may repent. Remember the flood? He did it once. I mean, God could get rid of everybody if he wanted to. But he doesn't. God shows patience by allowing evil because he's allowing people to live so that they would repent and come to faith. 1 Timothy 1, 15-16, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You could say it this way. God loves us too much to get rid of evil because if he had to get rid of evil, he'd get rid of all of us and destroy the world. That's kind of a weird way of thinking about it. Number five, or number whatever, the next number. No, number four. On the final day, King Jesus will end evil once and for all by making all things new. We may not understand why there's evil and suffering today. We may not understand how God's sovereignty works with human responsibility. We may not ever have it all figured out, but we do know how the story ends. And what happens in Revelation 21, 4-5, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. There is a purpose in your suffering. You may not know what that purpose is. God does not do anything randomly. God always does things with a purpose. Now, you may not know what that purpose is. But if you're going through suffering, if you're going through a hard time, if you're going through pain, there's a purpose in it. And God's the potter, and you're the clay, And he's shaping you and he's molding you ultimately to be more like Jesus. And he's taking you through this so that he can grow your faith. And ultimately on the final day, he's going to make all things new and you're going to be in heaven and you will receive your reward and all that suffering will be over. So the path to true transformation almost always comes through suffering and trials. This was true for Joseph. How long did he have to wait? From the moment he was sold into slavery until he was released. Do you remember how many years he had to wait? 13 years. So at 17, he was thrown into prison. Or not into the prison. He was thrown into the pit at 17, sold into slavery, and then was in prison until the age of 30. And then, then he was released. So he had to go through 13 years of suffering before God raised him. 
Jesus went through greater suffering than Joseph. Jesus had to endure the cross. Jesus had to suffer three days in the tomb. And then God raised him up on the third day as King of kings and Lord of lords. So as you think about your response to God's sovereignty, to the evil that's perpetrated against you, to suffering, let's listen to the encouragement of 1 Peter chapter 5, 6-7. through Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your cares on Him because He cares for you. So, is God absolutely sovereign? Yes. Are people responsible for their actions and sin? Yes. Does God work out all things for good? Yes. So what do you and I do? We cast all our cares upon Him because He cares for us. And in the proper time, He will exalt us. He cares about us. He knows what He's doing. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. Our job is to humble ourselves before Him, trust Him, and know that God is working out all things for your good and for His glory. And that may be painful. That may take time. We may not know all the answers. But we do know that God's doing it for our good and for His glory. And we cast ourselves on Him because He cares for us. That's the end of the life of Joseph. So uh, let's pray. Father, thank You for the life of Joseph. It's been a, a great journey to see the transformation of this young man into who he was in his life. And Lord, just this family with Jacob and Judah and Joseph and Benjamin and how your sovereign hand was all through it. Lord, we may not understand your sovereignty and human responsibility and how it all works together. And Lord, sometimes maybe we're not meant to understand that. Maybe just in the desperation of our, of our suffering, we cast all our cares upon you because we know that you care for us. And maybe that's the most important thing is just to know that you care, that you're doing it for our good, you're doing it for your glory. And we can just trust you to be our good Heavenly Father. And Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for taking our sin and shame. And thank you for giving us eternal life. And we know that one day you'll wipe away every tear and death will be no more and there will be an end to suffering. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day. Would you return soon? Uh, we wait for your coming and we thank you for all the ways you've been good to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.